Welcome to the How I Learn This podcast, brought to you by Future Hack, where every week Joseph Jong speaks to outstanding students, successful parents, inspiring educators, and exceptional entrepreneurs to hear about their secret life hacks so you can follow their unique learning paths that allow them to get into the top schools, have their dream careers, and impact millions with their exponential startups. So whether you're an aspiring student, an anxious parent, a budding entrepreneur, or an experienced professional looking to transform your career, then you're in the right place. So just sit back, relax, and let us take you to the hilt. Thanks for joining us at How I Learned This Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Jung. I know this is a very precarious time to start a podcast with the coronavirus going on around the world. But at the same time, I see every crisis as a great opportunity. In fact, I started my last two companies in times of great crisis. I started a hedge fund right after the SARS outbreak in 2003. And the second time I started a brokerage with some very good partners right in smack in the middle of the global financial crisis. Both times it's worked out because when you start businesses and take opportunities when others are running away from risk is probably the best time to start something. So we're starting with the Hilt podcast so that I can share with you some of the ways that I've learned to hack my life and also interviewing some really great people to tell you their life hacks as well on how they learned and the specific paths in which they've learned to become successful in their lives. So before we start today, we're going to have a special message from our very first guest, Esther Wasicki, about her new book, How to Raise Successful People. My name is Esther Wojcicki. I'm the author of How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results. And I just want to talk to you a little bit about the coronavirus and the fact that it's a crisis for the world, actually the whole world, not just a few countries. We can mitigate this crisis by working together, trusting and respecting each other, allowing people more independence to solve problems, and treating each other with kindness in all circumstances. This philosophy is all part of my book, How to Raise Successful People. And my acronym TRIC, which is in the book, stands for Trust, Respect, Independence, Collaboration, and Kindness. These principles help people work together and get through difficult times. These principles work especially in parenting, in school, in corporations, and in our personal relationships. We need to see ourselves as part of a team of humanity working together to face the problems we encounter in life. When we work together, we can be creative and compassionate and overcome the problems we face, especially now with coronavirus. So I recommend you think about adopting these principles. You'll see how effective they can be. Make sure you pick up a copy of Esther's book, How to Raise Successful People, and learn about her trick methodology, T-R-I-C-K. It's an amazing book. I'm using it right now to homeschool my children, and it's a core part of our ethos at the Future Hack Innovators Summer Program. Now, what is the Future Hack Innovators Program? It's something that I started three years ago. We've held it at MIT for the last three years. And if you're a teenager that wants to change the world and have your sights set on the top universities, then I hope you're not just counting on your grades and test scores to get you in. Top unis are looking for students with entrepreneurial experience, great public speaking skills, and a lot of great tech skills. 
That's what the Future Hack Innovators Summer Program is all about. Check us out at futurehack.co. That's F U T U R E H A C K.co. Today, we have my mentor, somebody who I've been following and looked up to, and、uh, she doesn't know it, but she has a disciple. <laughs> Happy to hear that. <laughs> Um, but I'm a huge fan, and you know, we met three years ago、um, on the way to Davos, the World Economic Forum, and I heard your talk on education, which was moonshots in education, and it was totally inspiring. And it was right at this time when I was getting out of my finance career and moving into trying to transform myself into. A career in education and and really trying to change education, and when I heard what you had said, it just really inspired me, and I've been trying to be on this mission ever since. So today I have the privilege of being here with Esther Wojcicki, and she has a very long list of、uh, accolades. She's been in Forbes and. Time magazine and every other magazine, she's gotten multiple awards.、Um, but I think the most rewarding, probably for her, is your students and your three daughters. That's correct. One of the stories that you told me early on was that you really risked your whole career by tossing out the textbook and the curriculum very early on, and taking a risk in teaching what you thought was right. As a result, many years later, you have many very happy students and very fulfilled students. Three brilliant daughters that have been successful beyond anything I can imagine, and also a media arts center at the Palo Alto High School to prove it, which is an amazing twenty-five thousand square foot facility. Where the minute I walked in, the students were, you know. Absolutely, you know, delighted. They were in control of their own classroom. The day that I walked in here was、uh, the day that we went on the Christmas holiday, and they presented you with a really nice present right before the holidays.、Right. So you don't see that too much in school. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. It was really, really sweet. Yeah. So let's go into it and really figure out. What all the risks that you took and all the obstacles that you had to encounter and overcome to get to where you are. So the number one risk that I had to take back in nineteen eighty four eighty five was、um, that I decided that lecturing to my students every day and forcing them to read a book that they didn't want to read and that I didn't think was very interesting either.、Um, That I would actually get rid of all of that and change the way the classroom was functioning. That was the biggest risk because nobody was doing that. When you collaborated, in fact, it was called cheating. So you were never supposed to take your homework home and call your friend on the phone and talk to them about the work because then you could get into trouble. And your parents knew that, and so you were just supposed to sit in your room by yourself and do the work. Terrible. So, for me to encourage that kind of behavior, you can imagine the whole system was against me. But I decided that's what I wanted to do. 
Fortunately, I was able to get my students to support it. They were really excited to support me in my teaching methodology. And then after two years, I got tenure. You know, once you get tenure, it's harder to fire you. Was that your first job uh, no, as a I, teacher? I, and, I, and can you tell us a little bit about the background of why you became a teacher and the degree that you had? Was it a traditional degree or you have a teacher that kind of sparked that out of you? I have a degree in um, political science and English. That's an undergraduate degree. I had two majors from University of California, Berkeley. And then I also have a graduate degree in journalism. And then I also have a teaching credential from UC Berkeley. And my jobs were really as a journalist. And the teaching credential was just, you know, in case I needed it. And, um, but most of the time I was working as a journalist. And, uh, but I did start to teach. Uh, I had one class that I taught in San Leandro that was after I graduated from, from Berkeley. That was five classes, and I was the last teacher to be hired, so they gave me five different preparations. I was teaching senior English, business math, algebra two. Um, <laughs> let's see, what else was that? It was, oh, geometry. And then um, that was, there was one other class, but I can't remember, but they were all different. Oh, yearbook. That's right. <laughs> yearbook is that. That was like, took a lot of my time, the yearbook. When I was teaching there, of course, I was new. I was like only 22 or 23 years old. And, um, you know, it was a, a school in a low-income area. And they didn't really have a lot of personnel to monitor me. And so... I was actually really grateful. <laughs> I could do a lot of the things that I wanted, but I still had to follow the curriculum. But it was in that first class or first teaching assignment that I realized that what I was teaching in all those classes didn't work. And um, I took a risk in the senior English class because it was a group of students, or about 20 students in the class, and about um, 16 of them were boys and four were girls. And they didn't know how to read, and they were seniors. It was pretty drastic. (laughs) And and not only that, they came to school. It was first period in the morning, and they were hungry. That was really nasty. How are you supposed to read and learn when you're hungry, you know, first period? So the first thing I did was show up with food. That worked. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Your your motherly instinct came... Well, you know, I didn't want anybody to be hungry, you know, it just didn't seem fair. Yeah. So, um, and then I tried to find some material for them to read that was interesting. So they would want to read as opposed to be forced to read. So I did find some materials for them to read that were not traditional. I pulled it out of magazines and um, there were, you know, we were reading jokes, for example. They thought that was pretty funny. And, (laughs) um, you know, then I had short stories that I thought had a point. And so a lot of the kids learned to read. It was kind of amazing. Uh, They weren't hungry, and they were interested. So that was just my first initiation into teaching. And so then I I realized that, you know, my gut instincts seemed to work better than what they had told me that I was supposed to be doing. So you acted really on just human instinct. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that giving them something they would rather read and would enjoy reading would get them to read more. That's right. So, I mean, I just went on my own instincts. And so you asked me, like, what was my education like? 
it was not good. And so I wanted to do something that was better than what I had experienced. And so that's, that was part of my motivation because I knew that it had to be better than that. And because um, my high school, I went to school in Los Angeles and there wasn't enough in the way of facilities. So they had a double session is the way they called it. So some kids went to school from 7 to 11.30 and other kids went to school from 1 till 5. And it just was like madhouse. And it was a high school, so yeah. grade 7 to 12. And um, basically it was a factory for memorization. And I just, it was not very good. The teachers didn't really want to be there. Nobody really wanted to be there. The students didn't the want student to be there. Wanted, nobody wanted to be in <laughs> <The> teachers. <laughs> but I saw education as the only way out. I was really, it came from a very poor family. So I was like, I was going to do it anyway. So I did. So I didn't have a model. I just knew that what I was doing didn't work right. for most of my friends. As a matter of fact, very few of them went on to college. You know, I was one of the rare birds, and the only reason I went on to college was because I knew that I wanted to get out of poverty, and yeah, so I was yeah. inspired. At that point, I was willing to do anything, and anything meant, you know, those silly things they wanted me to study, so I did it. <laughs> um, but then when I went into education myself, I was like, I want to make it better. I want people to have a good time. You know, yeah. why not? Why would you have to suffer? You know, this, what you're studying should be relevant to the world. So that's what I started to do when I first started in teaching in that school in San Leandro. The school doesn't exist anymore anyway. Mm. They, they tore it down, yeah. so it's gone. But I learned a lot there. Then I went to France, and I lived in Paris and in Geneva, and went to school there as a student at the Sorbonne and the University of Geneva. And then I saw how education was there, which is actually worse. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Okay. I was expecting an... That it was better, but no, it was, it was, they, everybody, the whole world had the same idea. It's so like, the the whole you... world was, you know, it made it a horrible place to be, and and actually made you memorize stuff that you didn't want to. Right, University of Geneva was better. They they had a better idea. So you know, I couldn't speak any French, but leave it to me anyway to show up. Um, and they they gave me a crash course for three months. And in three months, I managed to learn enough French so that I could be integrated. And um, so that was pretty nice of them, I thought. And it was a good program. Um, at the, in the Sorbonne, it was, um, it was like you're, you're fending for yourself. It's a public education system. And if you don't arrive in class on time, you don't get any, cl- any place to sit. You know, let alone your, the professors, like way up there in the distance. And, you know, they don't even notice you. So, but, um, you know, I pursued. Was, well, what was different there that made it slightly better? In Geneva? University yeah. of Ge- well, they put me in a class. It was a really great class. I think there were maybe six people and me and a teacher. I was like, wow, this yeah. is great. And the teacher's main goal is like, God, you better learn that French now <laughs> or we're going to be in trouble. And I wanted to learn because, you know, I wanted to talk to people. You know, all I could say was, well, you don't want to know really what I could say. But anyway, um, and so I, I learned and I wanted to be in that program. Mm-hmm. And um, then I joined the School of International Relations. And it was fascinating, you know, to hear international relations from the perspective of uh, the Swiss, or it was actually an international school. And then I came back to the United States and... Um, 
ended up later teaching in um, here in Palo Alto. Our next sponsor is My Capital, one of Asia's first licensed institutional grade cryptocurrency and digital asset management companies. It's no longer a secret that a well-diversified portfolio with as low as 1% invested in Bitcoin can greatly outperform all the others still in denial of the digital currency wave. Check them out at MyCapital, M-A-I-Capital.io. For all the visitors coming to visit Asia, or if you are in Asia already, drop me a line. I'm at hiltpodcast at futurehack.co. And for those of you looking for an adventure in Asia, don't miss the Flight of the Gibbons in Chiang Mai. It's the first and the most trusted zipline adventure in Thailand. It's a rare chance for you and your family to see and learn about primates while zipping through the forest right alongside these amazing gibbons. It's the most eco-friendly family tourist destination, and I've actually taken my own family on there, and we've had an absolute blast. Visit them at flightofthegibbon.com. So Palo Alto uh, High School was the uh, first job that you took coming back. I had one other job before that Mm -hmm. um, at a school. Some of all these schools have been, you know, replaced. It was called San Carlos High School, San Carlos. And um, I was there for two years. And that was an English class. Those were English classes and a journalism program. And um, I got into a little bit of trouble there because (laughs) I... I let the students write articles about what they wanted to write articles about. Mm-hmm. And they wrote some articles that were provocative. And um, the, um, the administration wasn't thrilled with that. They don't, don't want any articles about um, any provocative topics. And I mean, in today's world, nobody would blink an eye because <laughs> yeah. that is not provocative. But, you know, back then it was like, Sit quietly, don't make any confusion or any, don't do anything. Just sit quietly, write your article, and graduate. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and this article made people think, and that was considered provocative. You changed up the curriculum at Palo Alto High School, right? Yeah. And the students started to respond. Well, I started with 19 students, let's put it that way. And then within like three years, I had 50. And there must have been something I was doing that was attracting all these people. And it just continued to grow. And after I'd been there for 10 years, there were 100. Right. And so at that point, I started other classes. I said, you know, it's just too many students. But they actually sat in on your class and audited your class and saw the way that you were teaching. And there was no complaints about not teaching according to a textbook. Oh, well... There, there was the administration. Yeah, they supervise. Supervised, and sorry. they come in yeah. and they write up observations. And yeah. they're like, they, oh yeah, I got knocked for that. You know that my class was not uh, quote out of control, out of control because students were talking to each other. And it's like I think I wanted them to do that, and uh, so um, I think it's good. But they said, no, it wasn't good, and that really the, the class should consist of me telling the students what to do, them writing it down, and then them taking a test about what I had said, uh, which didn't work for me. And so I, in order to pass those observation tests by the administration, I had to get my students to cooperate. They, I had to tell them, which is what I did. I was like, you know... 
guess what? I'm going to be fired if you guys don't help me. And what I need you to do is next time they come in, the administration, you have to, I don't want you to say anything, not a <laughs> word. And I just want you to look at your desk, look at what is ever on your desk, I don't know, your book or whatever, and don't talk. And, you know, if I say something, just agree. Anyway, they thought it was very helpful. My students liked that idea. So that's what happened. That's how I passed. Because they came in and they're like, wow, what'd you do to the kids? <laughs> How'd you get to be so cooperative? <laughs> not going to tell you, that's for sure. <laughs> but through the years, then what happened is the program just continued to develop this way. And the reputation grew around the school that there was a lot of project-based learning, that the kids were in control, and that was considered, you know, kind of out there. Nobody did it. And it still, you know, it took a long time, many years, for it to be accepted as a way to teach. And I think the thing that made it acceptable is how successful my students became. What do you call successful? What What is your definition of success? Successful is when kids are happy to be in school and happy to be producing something together with their peers that they're really proud of. And that, I mean, I didn't have to fight with them to be there. They wanted to be there. As a matter of fact, the number one thing, problem I had is wanting them to go home and want to leave. Uh, so that was success. And also the fact that they were then passionate about something in life that they wanted to do. They were able to transfer that passion to whatever it is they wanted to do. Because I said to them, I'm not training you all to be journalists. I'm training you all to be human beings for, the, for life, 21st century. Uh, at that point, it was still the 20th century. <laughs> yeah. um, but they have most of them. I, I keep in touch with a lot of them. They're all doing amazing work, and they, they believe in themselves. You know, just like a lot of, some of them went into sports, some of them went into, you know, journalism, teaching, medicine, um, entrepreneurs, they're all over the place. But the goal of this type of teaching is for the student to believe in themselves and to believe that they can accomplish whatever they set their mind to accomplish. Yeah. And you give them that opportunity in class and then it, they transfer that to other parts of their lives. Yeah. I think a lot of us, we kind of, uh, think back into our childhood and uh, through our primary schools or, or high schools. And most of the time, you can only really pick out one teacher that kind of inspired you in, in, in a certain way. And a lot of times, I don't even remember what they taught, like whether it was math or English. I had no idea. But the one thing that makes a memorable teacher is that they've inspired you to do more and to learn more and to be yourself and actually learn more and have that self-motivation. I think that's probably what really makes a great teacher. It's not necessarily that they've taught you more than another teacher or anything like that. It's that inspiration that led you to be curious about learning more things. So what that is, is that it gives you permission to be yourself. Yeah. And it also gives you belief in yourself. And I think that the only teacher that I remember, and I don't remember the name, or I don't. the only thing I remember about that person was I was in grade four. And that person actually liked me and believed in me. And that's what made the difference. And 
all the other teachers, I remember some of them that would say, you know, you'll never do this or you'll never. And, you know, that's really discouraging to a, a kid. And all it takes is like, what is it, 20 seconds of a negative statement to make a kid feel bad about themselves for the rest of their life? So, you know, when I became instructional supervisor in Palo Alto for English, if there was, I ever heard of a teacher saying that, as far as I was concerned, they were out. Because that's really damaging. Yeah. Who are you to say that a student can't do something? You know, they can do anything they set their mind to doing. So that's what I, that's the main thing that I do, is try to show that they have a mindset or want them to have a, promote their mindset so that they feel that no matter what it is that they want to do, they can do. I mean, one of the students in my class is this girl who became an Olympic champion in table tennis. I mean, I never taught table tennis to her at all, but, you know, she decided that's what she wanted to do. Like, that's wonderful. Or, you know, basketball. We have a basketball star. There's a lot of people who have succeeded in ways their parents would never have guessed. And a lot of parents seem to think that they know the best. You know, that this yeah. my kid. I know what to tell him to do. And, you know, he's going to be like, going to be an architect. You know, <laughs> I can see it now. No, maybe that kid does not want to do that. You know, and a lot of kids are forced into professions, careers, lifestyles that they really aren't happy with. Right. And so we have a whole nation full of depressed people taking a lot of pharmaceuticals that are making all the pharmaceutical companies really rich and everybody else miserable. And, and we have a nation of, you know, addicts, you know, mm-hmm. addiction deaths, overdoses are like greater than they ever were during the AIDS ec- epidemic. So why do people do that? Well, because they're unhappy. People take drugs to soothe emotional pain. So that's well, part of the problem. One of the things that, that makes a great teacher is just um, helping students believe in themselves and giving them as much you know, freedom uh, to explore and telling them they can do it. Not only can you do it. Yeah. If you do it wrong, no problem. Just do it again. Just do it again. Yeah. Allowing the them to fail. the school system doesn't do that. That's the right. The school system's like, oh my God, you've got, you know, this a D on this test and a D on that test, a C on that test, and now you finally learned it and you're getting an A. Oh, your grade's going to be a C. Because, you know, they average all the grades. And so by the time you finally master it, you're depressed. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> how could I have been that dumb? Right. Yeah, I grew up with a single mother. I didn't have a father with me, but I had some great, you know, father figures, uncles, and, you know, my godfather, who was this big Irishman named Joe. And I had uh, some some great mentors. That's what they did. They they always encouraged me and said, you can be whatever you want to be. Whatever you want to do, you just tell me and I'll help you, you know, find a way to do that. And that's what you, but see, that's, you're yeah. really lucky. I was really of, lucky. A lot of people don't have that. Yeah. And then they get really depressed yeah. in life. And um, I think that it's important for parents to know that what you want to do is just believe in your child. And even though the kid looks like, oh my God, I can't do anything, can't even dress himself, because the room is messy you know, does all this stuff. You never know. Just take a look at Einstein. He didn't talk till he was three. <laughs> okay, and his parents thought there was something seriously the matter with him. 
So you never know, you know, give yeah. the kid a, can- a chance. When I was 13 years old, I wanted to work on Wall Street. So I started to study all these, you know, Wall Street books and read the Wall Street Journal. And I, I was set on one day being on Wall Street because we were so poor. <laughs> we had nothing. I, I was working two jobs and everything. And so my uncles and my godfather never told me that you can't do it. In fact, at that time, in the early 80s, there were no minorities working on Wall Street. It would have been kind of like, you know, if they actually looked at what was going on, and they actually told me the truth, the truth would have been that I had zero chance of working at a Wall Street firm. And my goal, I, you know, my high school essay was that one day I would work on Wall Street, but not just work on Wall Street, but own my own investment firm on Wall Street. Oh my God. So that would be like, oh, so that was my that was moonshot. Yeah, that was my moonshot goal. <laughs> and uh, when I wrote that, I remember showing it to my aunts and uncles and my godfather. And they never said, you know, there's no minorities on Wall Street. You can't do it. And, you know, and and there's no there's no definitely no minorities on the Wall Street firm. That's for sure. Right. So they never said that. And they they always said you can do it. And so and then even when I got to university, I had my first job at like Shearson Lehman. And my mentor there said, I think, you know, because I'd been studying this stuff when I, since I was 13. So he, he looked at all the materials that I was doing, the research that I was doing and, and the portfolio I had constructed. And he said, I had never seen anybody do this <laughs> at your age. He said, we have research analysts here that don't do this type of work. And he said, I think you're going to be probably my brightest student that's going to go so far on Wall Street. And I looked at him like, I can't do that, you know? But the fact that he said that... that it's just huge. The fact that he said that made me believe every single time I doubted myself, which was like every single day. Right. I thought of that, and it pushed me, gave me that little boost over that fear every single time and i just use that as energy from you know every single time and and i think that's what a great teacher does that's you know right. that's a, what a great teacher, teacher is does. a mentor that just believes in you and says hey you can do it and, right and, you know no matter what the circumstances or the odds right so tell me about the moonshot classroom so the moonshot classroom is a classroom in which students they have goals for themselves, and I do everything I can to help them realize those goals. So it's a moonshot. And uh, so now I have a foundation called globalmoonshots.org, and the reason it's global is because the problem is this globally. Yes. And in some countries, it's even worse than it is in the United States, where you know the number one goal in some of those countries is you just have to obey. And... Um, but that doesn't work for most people. And there's a lot of depression and a lot of suicide. And um, the, the average person wants to have some control over their life and not just obey. So that's why it's Global Moonshots. And that's why my classes are moonshot classes. 
And, you know, if the students who want to, you know, they all, they come in with some kind of goal. They sometimes feel that they're never capable of doing that. And I was like, I think you could probably do it. Let me show you how. And so it's usually them using a combination of encouragement from me and um, websites because there's so much online that you can learn by yourself, you know, on YouTube or Khan Academy or Coursera or Udacity or anything. I mean, you can learn anything. I mean, you know, if I want to know how to, you know, fix, if I have a problem with one of my toes, you know, I can go online and figure out what the problem is with that toe, you know, and I don't have to go around and ask anybody. So the idea is through Google and the search engines, empower people, get that information yourself, do that yourself. You know, you don't have to ask permission, just find out, you know, I think kids are born, uh, especially these days, because they're born with uh, an iPhone, iPad in, in their hand, they're natural inclination is to go and search themselves and to do this. But when you get into school, they literally crush it out of you, mm-hmm. right? I know in Japan and some other countries, they don't allow cell phones in the classroom. And the and I think part of that is correct, is that they don't allow it because the only time the students are able to use it is text somebody or to socialize. They don't incorporate that into the classroom. If you incorporate it into the classroom, you incorporate the search of ideas and of things that you want to learn into the classroom environment then this, instead of becoming a tool for distraction, becomes a tool of learning. That's exactly right. So you, you, what you do is you're teaching the kids how to use their cell phone in a way that encourages education and empowers them. It's not just for texting, and it's not just for playing games or watching movies or listening to music. It's a resource. It's a library in your pocket. But as long as you don't know how to use it, it's not going to be a library of anything. So the goal, my goal in the schools is to teach kids how to use those resources intelligently, how to recognize, you know, something that is fake, that is posted there. How, what, what are the red flags for you to notice and, and why? And not just uh, say, oh, put it away and hide it. So I agree that, you know, in elementary school, maybe in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, you know, kids shouldn't have the phones. They can use an iPad to find information and things like that. But um, after that, it's an opportunity for the schools to teach the kids some self-restraint and some ethics. How do you use a phone in a way that's considered okay? Do you bring it out in the middle of lunch when you're talking to all your friends? You know, is that the kind of thing you do? Well, maybe somebody's asking for information and you're clarifying something. Well, sure, that's okay. But, you know, you're not on your phone texting the kids when you have a whole group of friends there. You know, that's not what you're doing. You're interacting with your friends. You're not on your phone. So, but you need to teach kids these things. They sound simple and they are simple. But if you say it, it makes a difference. Exactly. And I think the fact that we make this kind of an evil tool <laughs> or, or, you know, an evil device because, you know, the parents are against it, the teachers are against it, and put that away, you know, um, and you're, you're only allowed to have X amount of time of screen time just exacerbates the whole situation because they're not taught that this is actually a tool f- for, for good. Right. right. It's, it's yeah. considered, put that away. Yeah. You know, they, they, need, they need to use it in a way that is productive and not just 
put that away. Yeah, that's only if we can incorporate that into the classroom, right? That's right. And and it has to be incorporated. We have to be teaching how to use your phone in an intelligent way, how to search, how to evaluate the results of your search. It's part of the whole civics in thing because yeah. I mean we're using our phones for everything, for healthcare, for um, finding out information about yourself, for your finances. Every single teacher needs to incorporate kind of how to search for information, how to use it as a useful tool rather than you know vilifying. <laughs> Um, these devices. Um, and the other thing, you know, I, I read on your, um, at the Moonshots website that the pedagogy of preparing the students for the future using real projects as well. Yes, real and, projects. Yep. I, there's so much real stuff in the world that's interesting. And the yeah. kids are really interested in it. Making a connection between what they're learning and something that they can uh, identify with. That's correct. Yeah. Exactly. You know, um, why not do that? Yeah. Isn't that the purpose of education to improve your life in your environment? And the kids have great ideas. I mean, if we look at some of the companies that are out there today that are making the biggest impact, those companies were founded by people that were like 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. Yeah. Let's, why not respect these kids with some of their ideas? I mean, even little kids have come up with ideas. I mean, there was just read a story about an 11 year old that just did something remarkable. Because they haven't had the constraints put on them. Yeah, that's right. Well, they don't think they can't do it. Yeah, nobody that, told nobody them that they can't. They, can. they can't do it. So, like, as you go through school, it's basically putting one constraint on at a time. And by the time you get out of school, you're basically constrained to do one thing, which is what your major is or whatever it might be. And you think that you can't do anything else. Well, that's right. And who told you that? It's, it's really some adult out there that's in your respected adult world. Yeah. Parent, you know, guardian teacher. Yeah. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't, shouldn't do, do this. this. That's too risky. I think the real life projects is really important because just connecting the classroom with real current events. That's the truth. You know, like actually talking about current events. There's not enough of that. Most schools are closed systems. They have, you know, they're, they're limited closed systems and yeah. it's called a custom search engine. So this school takes the real search engine and cuts out everything they don't want the kids to know. It's called a custom search engine. Yeah. And they go online and kids think they're online, but they're not really online. They're on a custom search engine created just so that they feel like they're online. <laughs> That's not good. Yeah. And I don't understand why there isn't a much bigger connection with the community, with the companies in the community. And I mean, look at Palo Alto. How many students have parents who are doing amazing things in this world? A lot of them. Right? Yeah. I mean, in Palo Alto, there's a lot of parents that are really kind of exceptional. Exactly. So they probably do that here where they bring in parents and, and do some talks to the students. Well, I always students. bring in parents. Yeah. Because I find them very interesting. But but that's actually quite rare. I think, you know, most schools don't do that enough in terms of connecting the students with, you know, just uh, having parents come in or having um, leaders in the corporate community come in 
and talk about what they do. Right. They don't do that enough. There is some of that, but very, very uh, limited. And also connecting the class that you're teaching to something that is relevant today. So like one of the things that was my daughter's science class and, you know, and she was taking astronomy. And the week before the SpaceX rocket actually just launched, right? They didn't even talk about that in class. They didn't? They didn't even talk about that in class. You know, and then with the genetics and all the things that's happening with CRISPR-9, they're not even talking about that in class. Those are the things that are going to inspire the students to learn a lot more about that subject and to make the learning fun for them. Yes, I agree. Yeah, but that's not happening at all. Well, that's a problem because what's happening is the students or the teacher is sticking to the curriculum, saying like, we have a test um, and, you know, you have to follow the curriculum so you can pass that test. And so if there's some kind of tragedy in the world or some kind of event in the world, they just ignore it. They're like, Sit down, you know, we're going to be taking out our social studies book and we're going to study what happened in 1873 and you're going to pay attention. And that's really not the way to do it. No, no. On the other hand, I don't want to blame the teachers. The pressure on those teachers is really off the charts. Yes. The pressure to for your students to succeed on a test. Oh, absolutely. It's It's a a system problem. It's a system-wide problem because the teachers are... uh, you know, are graded based on the test scores. So if they don't teach the curriculum and the test scores aren't there, then they get in trouble and then the whole school loses funding and et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it has to come from the change is, it has to be a system-wide change. It can't be saying, oh, I have to change the teachers. We recently did a teacher training program in Japan where we trained 50 teachers. And the thing that we did differently was instead of just training the teachers, we we had 60 students and 50 teachers. And we said, okay, you guys tell each other how to change this thing. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So the students and the teachers were paired up in groups and then they told each other their ideas for changing things. And then the teachers gave them, hey, we want to change too. And and it turned out that the teacher wanted to change these things as much as the students did. Right. But and everybody's trapped by the system. The that's t- right. And so this that's why one of the things I do with globalmoonshots.org is I'm af- changing the system. That's my goal. Yeah. So how do you teach for the 21st century? Back when I was going to school, the only two things, the only two ways to do it was one, you had to listen to the teacher. And if you didn't listen, then you couldn't learn anything. Or two, you went to the library and you got a book. And today, we all have that electronic device of some kind that helps us learn. So we need to take advantage of it. So all those kids are taking advantage of it anyway. And and what's happening is that then they get bored in class, of course. Why wouldn't they be bored? They already learned all that stuff on YouTube. Exactly. I think the pedagogy that you have of looking towards the future and preparing them for the future, not just preparing them for the past, (laughs) which is, you know, what a lot of... The past is past. Yeah, which is... But the school curriculum is actually preparing them for the past. That's correct. The wrong century. And, um, And then having real projects, leveraging technology, and really having everything driven by your passion. And all of those things that you wrote down like many, many years ago that you 
put into practice. I mean, they're still to this day, like really provocative type of thinking for education. I know, you know, all those they're, years ago, and now it's provocative. And yeah. I've been doing yeah. it for thirty-five years. Exactly, but <laughs> but like literally, um, you know, for the Future Hack program that I run, right. this is exactly what it's based on. It's based on you know finding your passion first, leveraging some future technology, you know, you know, such as AI or or robotics or nanotechnology or genetics or something, mm-hmm. you know, CRISPR nine. Leveraging some technology and actually just introducing it to them, right? Mm-hmm. We don't teach robotics, right? But we talk about it in class. Mm-hmm. We don't ignore it, right? We talk about it and we say, can you pick two of those technologies out of the 10 future technologies? Can you pick two and incorporate it into your idea? Mm-hmm. Right. And this way, I mean, once we start talking about those ideas, wow, the conversation is unbelievable. These students really understand the technology already. It's just that when they get into a class or when they get into school, it's like, OK, I have to forget all of that mm-hmm. and just talk about school. Right. You know, so. That's kind of what we do. We leverage technology and then we teach them soft skills like, you know, how to present and all the things that you're doing in your class and then uh, teach them about entrepreneurship, how to actually form a company, how to do the market research to to research whether your product is good or bad or who to sell it to, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those things go hand in hand and they can be those skills can be used for anything. Mm-hmm. Right. So whether we call it like entrepreneurship or you call it, you know, like uh, media arts or, or journalism, it doesn't matter what name it is. It's really teaching the same thing, which is yes. empowering them to be able to lead better lives and be able to navigate. That's right, because life is full of problems. Yeah. Everybody has them, even if you think they don't. You know, all those people with a lot of money, trust me, they have a lot of problems, too. Everybody does. The question is how to respond in a way that is going to be effective for you and not make you depressed. And, you know, you have, in today's world, everything's changing so quickly. You need to be able to think and think critically. And school doesn't prepare us for that. So that's one of the things that I think needs to be emphasized in the schools. Critical thinking and creativity and how to get past a problem that you might be having. I mean... Just look, all you have to do is look at the news every day. There's enough problems there to last a lifetime in yeah, one day. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> I try not to look too much. <laughs> Especially these days. <laughs> no, I mean, it's really scary. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about a few topics that we, we kind of touched up in the past. Um, maybe you can talk about, I have a list here, uh, Steve Jobs, uh, Sergey, uh, your three daughters, uh, your favorite students. <laughs> I have a lot of favorite students. Yeah. And uh, we'll end with like creative commons and our new project. <laughs> yes. So let's start with maybe your three daughters. They're incredibly accomplished. Why don't you talk about, do you have a favorite? I don't have a favorite. They always want to know which one of them is the favorite. How can I have a favorite? You know, <laughs> when you have three, they're all great. Yeah. Yeah. So... They're all incredibly accomplished. I asked you this question before. How 
is it that all three of them are so incredibly accomplished? And what was your magic? Well, it's the same one that I use in the classroom. <laughs> it's like giving your child an opportunity to explore, figure out what they want to do, support them in that, and give them the mental attitude that they can do anything that they set their mind to do. And I think that that's what they have. And that's why they accomplished what they did. I remember when Susan first decided she wanted to go to Harvard as a, I was like, oh, that sounds exciting. But, uh, you know, how about Berkeley? I went there. <laughs> Mom, I want to go to Harvard. It's like, oh, okay, okay. It's like, well, it's just a little bit more expensive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She's like, okay, doesn't matter. So, you know, she already had her mind set up. She came to that conclusion herself. I did not, I never would have entertained that idea because of the cost. Um, but, you know, it worked then, out pretty well for her. I think it worked out pretty well for her. <laughs> but, um, you know, but she was already making decisions when she was a small child. You know, she made decorating decisions for her room at the age of six. Um, and I mean, these were long-term decorating decisions. I mean, mm. most people don't let their kid do that. Not at the age of six, no. Yeah, and then she made decisions about, you know, I'd let them make what they were going to do on the weekend, which museum they wanted to go to, if they wanted to go to a museum, you know, what they were going... So they made a lot of decisions. And their life was full of making decisions about what they were going to be doing, as opposed to me telling them what they are going to be doing. Their, their viewpoint was always respected. And I think that was very unusual mm. in those times. I grew up with this um, adage that my father always used to say to me, which was, spare the rod and spoil the child. So, you know, he was really good at not sparing the rod. You know, I was not spoiled, I can promise you. <laughs> and, but I, I thought that was terrible. You know, I was like, you want to tell me what you think? Do it. You know, it's okay. And um, so that was, I think, made a big difference in their lives because then they got to do what they were passionate about. I and mean, they're all passionate about their work. They're all right. doing different things. They were always challenged to think about what their opinions were, you know, why they wanted to do something. and They were always challenged yeah. and empowered and believed in. Right, and believed in, which is even more important because you can ask the child what they want to do, but unless they believe that they would actually be heard and listened to, then a lot of times they wouldn't give that right. their own opinion. No, I think most kids and most families are not listened to. Yeah. Um, and my kids had experience of going to other people's families where, you know, the kids had no control. Yeah. They were looked down upon. Um, and I've never done that. So I would say that that was just guessing, you know, because there's probably a lot of factors that impact yeah. their behavior. That was probably the most significant that, and they were given a lot of responsibilities at home. You know, clean your room, do the dishes, take care of the dog, you know, a lot of stuff. How did Susan, uh, we'll start with Susan, how did she progress to where she is today? As, as the... So it was never a straight shot. Yeah. You know, so she majored in French and English history and lit. Yeah, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good question. Okay. Yeah, maybe do you want to be a history teacher or a French teacher or whatever do you want to do? So she decided, of course, after she graduated and already had the degree that maybe she didn't really want to do what she majored in. Right. So it's like, okay, well. So the next thing I knew is she decided she wanted to go to India. There she was, off to India. 
What are you going to do in India? Well, I don't know. Mom, let's see. I'll learn Hindu. <laughs> well, and then she ended up working for India Today as a magazine. She was a photographer for the magazine. She had a great time. So it was definitely not a straight shot. Then the question is, what are you going to do now with your degree in history and, you know, French and English history and lit? She decided to come back to the United States and then get a degree in mathematical, I think it was called, applied economics. Wow. I said, well, did you ever take a course <laughs> in economics? No. Well, how about any math courses? No. Well, how, you can get a graduate degree and you haven't taken any courses? No. Well, she's like, I'll do it. But see, her attitude is already there. Yeah. Her attitude is like, I can do it. Who cares? Yeah. And she ended doesn't up... doesn't matter that I don't know anything about it now. I can learn I'll, it. I'll learn it. Yeah. And so she ended up being... She got an award when she graduated as being the best teaching assistant. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> amazing. Like, oh, wow. That's yeah. amazing. And then after that, she went and she got a graduate degree at UCLA, um, Graduate School of Business. Mm-hmm. She got an MBA. And again, that was all her doing. You know, it wasn't me That's a lot of degrees. She has three degrees, right? Yeah. Well, she got the second degree because you know the first degree she couldn't figure out whether she wanted to use it or not <laughs> and um so but i'm just telling you it was not you know yeah. and then she went to work for a company that she didn't really like when she first went to work and all everything was basically her decision her ideas she worked on what she wanted to do you know i gave her the tools and the belief in herself, but she accomplished it all herself. That's all Susan. And Janet did the same thing and Anne did the same thing. Right. What eventually led her to YouTube and Google? Well, Google was, well, what eventually led her to Google was that um, she decided she needed to rent the garage in this very large house she bought because she wanted to make sure she could make the mortgage payment. And she looked around. This was in Menlo Park. She looked around Stanford to see if there was anybody that possibly wanted to rent a garage space. Larry and Sergey rented the garage. So she bought a house. And she She was trying to figure out how to pay the mortgage on the house. Right. And Larry and Sergey decided to rent her a garage. No, well, that was she looked around Stanford and she found two guys that were looking for a space. And she's like, (laughs) I have a garage, guys. Want to rent my garage? <laughs> oh, my God. And so they're like, sure, how much? And then they moved in to not only the garage, they moved into the three bedrooms and two bathrooms downstairs. Right, right. In addition to the garage, it was like oh. computers everywhere. Even in the bathroom, there was a computer. It's like, really? You have to go to the bathroom and have a computer next to you? <laughs> They were into a garage. It was pretty funny. That's how Google started in that garage. In that's her she, garage. That's how she got hired by Google when she finally realized, hey, these guys seem to be doing something worthwhile. What is that Google thing? Maybe oh, I'll talk to them oh, and figure it out. No, no, let me try it out. She tried it out. She's like, hey, it works. <laughs> She's like, I'll work for them. Wow. Okay. That is quite a story. <laughs> So I'm yeah. telling you, she wasn't yeah. targeting anything, you know. She was just like, let's work for these guys that are, what the, What are they trying to do? Hmm. I think they're trying to make the world information searchable. And their number one problem is like, how do we make money? We know how to find the information, but we can't figure out how to make money. 
So they didn't go into Google to make money. Right, their, right. their goal was, let's make the world's information searchable. Then they hired Susan as like, oh, can you help us figure out how to make some money? Of course, she didn't have a lot of ideas either, yeah. but she came up with some. Right. Well, that's part of her upbringing is like, well, I don't know how to do that, but hey, let's, L- let's let sit down and figure it out. Yeah, she was also, yeah. her number two task, I think, was... Um, let's make so she's supposed to be publicity PR for Google with no budget. They had nothing. Right, right. Just do it. <laughs> so she had to figure out how to do it. Right. I mean, and and she do. There's like no complaining. Right. The idea is like you do it, and you know that's your job. So she figured it out. Wow. Today she's the CEO. CEO of, of YouTube. YouTube. Yeah. She was actually responsible for all of Google's advertising revenue since the day they were born. Right. So then she moved from being in charge of advertising revenue and how Google t- should be making money to being the CEO of YouTube. She really likes YouTube. so that's well, YouTube makes a ton of money now, too. YouTube makes money, too. She's very good at trying to you know, make sure that the product can last and do, do well. Right. And be ethical, you know, so she works really hard. That was Larry and Sergey's goal. Is, wow. Yeah. Be, you know, they're, they're, that was their main goal, is to make sure that they served the whole world in being able to find information. And that was one of the reasons they wanted to scan all the books, because they wanted everybody to be able to access those books that are just sitting there on shelves. And nobody reads. Right. And... uh Unfortunately, that product happened at a time when it was just too early. People felt threatened by it. But in fact, it's a sad situation because millions of books were scanned and they're not available to anybody. And they're still just sitting on the death. On the oh, shelf. I didn't know that project was dead in the water. It's not completely dead. Yeah. But, you know, you can't get a whole book. Did you ever go to Google Scholar, Google Books? No. Well, they just have parts of the book. Oh, I see. So that you can't have the whole book. Right, right. And um, so there's books that are, you know, hundreds of years old that you... Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's not like a new book that's just come out. Um, They never suggested that. Yeah, it's it's an old book that that would otherwise sit there. That's right. Well, it's still sitting there. Right. Wow. So, I don't know, maybe... Eventually, society will yeah. catch up with the idea and uh, allow those all to be released. Well, she's doing an amazing job at YouTube. I mean, they've, uh, in terms of monetization, has have gone uh, through the roof. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what Anne and, or maybe Janet. Janet is a second daughter, and Janet decided that she wanted to live. Well, she first of all, she graduated from Stanford. And then she decided she wanted to study African-American history. So she got a master's degree in that. Then she decided she wanted to move to South Africa by herself and teach at the University of Witzfatersbond. And she did that. Can you imagine your daughter wow. going off to South Africa by herself without a cell phone? Was that was the era. And... Um, so she taught there for a couple of years, taught uh, medical anthropology, mm-hmm. and um, she's always been really interested in Africa. She loves Africa, 
Um, she had spent some time in Kenya before that, and now Rwanda. And she focused on the AIDS epidemic in Africa to see what she could do to help. So she did a lot of sociological, anthropological research, helped them figure out why they had such a big problem with AIDS. And, you know, she made a lot of significant contributions. And today she's a professor of pediatrics at University of California, San Francisco. It was a long road. She got some more degrees, quite a few, actually. She doesn't put all the degrees after her name because it would be too long. <laughs> <laughs> she is very degreed. And um, so she's her main focus now, after she still loves Africa mm-hmm. and what's going on, her main focus is the obesity epidemic and why are we yeah. so obese? And what can we do to correct that problem? Uh, what are the foods that we're eating that are causing it? Her number one target is um, any kind of soda with corn syrup. Yeah. It appears to be a real problem for that's, everybody. That's not allowed in the household. That's great. Well, <laughs> she would like that. It's not allowed in my classroom yeah. either. She just says the best thing for us to drink is water. Yeah. And we should, we're should. we not go. drinking water. We're <laughs> drinking the wrong thing. And not even milk, you know. Just well, it's interesting water. because she started off, uh, or she has a lot of interest in Africa going from kind of, I guess there's still hunger issue in Africa, much less so than before. Right. You know, I read some statistics that a lot more people die from obesity and overeating than, you know, or diseases associated with that than hunger now. And I think just realizing that, you know, we live in more of a world of abundance than just solving problems by trying to redistribute what we already have rather than trying to think that, you know, we still live in a world where there's scarcity of everything. Right. No, no, it's a, it's a different mindset. She's really working hard on that. And I think it will make a big difference. You know, she's very effective in what she's doing. She's actually in Japan now studying the Japanese eating habits. Oh, yeah. They live, I think, the longest and it's all the fish oil, and I was just, I spent six weeks there, and I actually lost weight while eating the best I've ever eaten in six weeks. I tell you, the okay. Japanese know how to eat. We can all learn from them. I walked ten to 12,000 steps a day. I know, she's doing the same yes. thing. What is that about Japan? So I basically, they know that too. Nobody owns a car in Japan. Uh-huh. So 40 million people live in Tokyo, and there's not a traffic jam. Okay. 40 million? 40 million people live in Tokyo and there's no traffic jams. Okay. Because they have a great infrastructure, subway system, bus, subway, taxis. It all works. And they make the taxi so expensive that you kind of walk. Okay. Let's just walk. Okay. You know, so. It's just enough steps from, you know, one subway to the other where you're like, okay, we can still walk. You know, mm-hmm. like, okay, it's either $25 or $30 for a taxi or we're going to walk. So, so it's walking. So it's walking. And, and so people are very used to walking. Uh-huh. And even the older people walk up and down the stairs because a lot of the subway stations aren't handicap ready. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So even the older folks are walking up and down the stairs. 
And but that's why they all live so long. <laughs> yes. And they eat healthy, fresh food. There's no processed food. You well, know? All I can say is so, the Japanese have a lot to teach the world. I was surprised to see McDonald's there and stuff like that. But, you know, they still have fast food. But most of the people just eat very freshly made, you know, fish, even good beef and rice. It's just all freshly made. And they, it's a healthy combination of vegetables and everything. So, yeah, I think it's just baked into the, yeah. the, into the whole society there. And what about Anne? So Anne has been a free spirit since the day she was born, of course. And um, so she went... She's she went the to, youngest. She's the youngest. Yeah. She went to Yale. She decided that by herself. She, uh, long before that, made a lot of decisions by herself. She decided she really liked ice skating, and she became a competitive ice skater. I was driving her to ice skating at 5 a.m., you can imagine how thrilled I was about that. But she continued that, and uh, then she actually did competitive ice skating at Yale. She was part of one of those synchronized ice skating teams that you see people yep. involved in. Um, then she also did um, ice hockey. She did a lot of stuff that you know wasn't my idea. It was her idea for sure. And then she majored in biology, molecular biophysics, actually, is what she started mm. in. She's really always been interested in the human body. And she ended up, um, she was thinking about going to medical school. I was a little worried about that because she's too creative. You know, you get into problems if you're a creative doctor. Yeah. Doctors have to follow instructions. And the instructions are provided, it's called by the community. Yeah. Community practice. You don't do something unusual. Um, so instead, she went into to Wall Street, where she worked in biotech. Oh, okay. And she was some biotech funds for a while. And she was a variety of different companies, investment firms, and then decided to start her own company in about 10 years ago called 23andMe. And that was based on what she had learned being involved in pharmaceuticals and, bio, and in biology and then actually being involved in medicine from the investment perspective. What triggered that? Basically, she wanted people to be in charge of their own medical care mm -hmm. because she had seen while she was on Wall Street and then she'd also done a lot of volunteering in hospitals. Um, she had seen what happens when people are not in charge of their own medical care. There was a lot of, a lot of illness, a lot of death, a lot of mistakes. and uh, So she wanted to help people prevent that. And um, so many people end up in the emergency room and get care that is wrong, which is, I think, there have been some studies showing that I think the number three way people die is medical error. Right. Number one is heart attacks. Number two, I think, is cancer. Number three is medical mistakes. Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. So she's like, what can we do to prevent that? What can we do to help people make more intelligent choices? And so that's how she ended up with 23andMe. So if you understand your genetics and you understand what your possibilities are, you can take better care of yourself. So if right, you have right. a gene that looks like it's predisposing you to diabetes, you can take steps that'll prevent that. But maybe you need to know about that. I, I think that's kind of the essence of the new medicine, which is really understanding your genetics, understanding your your body, and and then 
um, knowing how to prevent things from happening mm-hmm. rather than treating what's already happened. Mm-hmm. She's identified something that uh, is really important going forward, which is you know understanding everybody's genetic makeup and everything that you do and everything being data. Mm-hmm. So having the data about your body and about yourself and understanding the history behind that as well. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. And um, so that's why she's doing, and this was all her idea. And she's had some tough times, but she survived those yeah. tough times by just working with the system. Right. And trying to help everybody understand what her thinking was. And so now she's doing, I mean, the company is doing really well. Yeah. She cares a lot about her customers and about people and about making sure that everybody gets the data right and uses it correctly. And, you know, so they don't have any fears of their data being used in ways that are going to be a problem. She's very ethical. Yes. And um, so I think that all comes from, you know, all three of them are that way. Well, from what I, yes, I think I was, I think we know where that came from. A lot of time. Yes. Talking about that. Um, (laughs) Can you tell us any interesting stories about Sergey and Um, uh, the connection there? Not a lot of stories about Sergey. Well, just maybe one interesting one. Well, Sergey has an incredible sense of play. He, and I think, Creativity and play. So just related. a little background. How did Sergey and Anne, well, obviously through... They, they met in the garage. <laughs> in the garage, right? Yeah. At... Uh, Rollerblading. Rollerblading, okay. Yeah. Fantastic. So Sergey's one of the most creative people around. And he, I don't know, I would say that, I don't know whether he has this incredible sense of play now, but he did have this amazing sense of play. And... Um, and I think that goes along with creativity. Yes. He was not ever afraid to to challenge something or to make a mistake or to act silly or whatever. And that was what I thought was the best about him. And, you know, if the kids were on the floor, you know, rolling over like dogs, there was Sergey doing the same thing. And, <laughs> um, you know, they might have been five and six, and there's thir- Sergey at 30 doing the same thing. Right. But I think that being able to think critically and not being afraid of what other people say about what you're doing made the difference for him. You know, because I'm sure that, uh, you know, coming up with that algorithm was tough. And uh, but he just like, that's something I want to do and I'm going to do it. And um, and then working with Larry on that. So he was he was very persistent, and I think that was great. What was it like to be kind of an inside witness to this company going from a garage to the biggest company, almost the biggest company in the world? It's, I mean, it's kind of a big shock. Still a big shock to me. I can't believe that it's so big. It happened right in front in of your front eyes. Of my eyes, my very eyes. That's correct. I um just amazed that it happened but you know i applaud them because they have really really good goals and i think people could see that and then they also hired people they did a great job of hiring people and treating them well so you heard about all the food that is available 24 7 and there's a doctor on site and dry cleaning and exercise and so they really care about their employees. They don't just say they care about their employees. They actually do it. 
And um, so they try to encourage employees to be able to make changes or to take a risk. They employ this um, acronym that I have in my book, the first book, Moonshots in Education. It's called TRIC. I don't know if you heard of it. It's yeah. stands TRIC stands for Trust, Respect, Independence, Collaboration, and Kindness. So they basically pick employees that are highly qualified. They trust them, respect them, mm. give them independence, let them collaborate, and treat them with kindness. It works. Right. The most creative wow. company on the planet. That's, that's, that's the formula. That's the formula. And other companies have copied. There's others around. They might not have copied as effectively. Mm-hmm. But I think it's great for all companies to do that. If you right. want to have creative employees, I mean, you have to right. treat well, you, them well. You can't just copy it. It's kind of like there's many Silicon Valleys around this world. Right. <laughs> but there's only really one. Right. Mm-hmm. You can say that you copied it and you can name it that, but you know, you have to live it. And I think with your daughter there and Susan there and Sergey and Larry, they, they really lived those ideals and that's why it worked. They lived it, they believed it. It wasn't just something yeah. that they talked about. It was something and it still is something that they believe in very yeah. strongly. Yeah. I mean, I think Larry was the one that was the most dedicated to the book project, to sharing the books. Mm-hmm. I think he was pretty disappointed when you know, yeah. it didn't work out. They were all disappointed, you know, because yeah. their goal really is to make the world a better place. And yeah. So you just have to, people attack them on one thing or another. But Google is, is a very different company than some of the other companies here mm. in Silicon Valley. Speaking of uh, Silicon Valley, the other company, Apple, you had told me an interesting story about Steve Jobs. I loved Apple, and I still do, and I do use just Apple computers here. And so I met Steve Jobs in 19, I think it might have been 92 or 93, when he came to interview me and interview me one day. I was um, instructional supervisor for English. <laughs> what what do you mean by that? He came in unannounced, I don't know who, didn't know who he was, to interview me to see what kind of school I had and what kind of teacher I was, because he was thinking of putting his daughter in this school, and I didn't know anything about who he was, because, you know, I wasn't paying attention, he wasn't hired by Apple at the time, it was in between the time he was there. And uh, whatever I said, the interview, and it wasn't a planned one, he just showed up. Um, seemed to have worked because all I know is that, you know, not far after that, his daughter, Lisa, showed up in my class, showed up in the school. And um, I'm trying to remember, I can't remember if she was also in the beginning, she must have been in the beginning journalism program too, because I didn't let anybody in who hadn't taken it. So during that time, when she was in the class, of course, Steve came in and he was very um, candid about what he thought about what was going on. He was, so he actually sat in on your classes? He just sat on the floor. He just came in and <laughs> In his slippers. Out. I can't... What he was... He always dressed down. You right, know, whatever right. he was wearing, he just... He didn't ever let that bother him. <laughs> I remember a couple of times that Laureen came in, and then all the kids came in, and... They supplied food for one of the production nights, or maybe did it multiple times. I didn't think anything of it. They were he was they were super nice. 
Right. They're still, Lorraine's still super nice. Yeah, and I, I thought Steve was, I thought he was a good guy. And then also he helped me later on with some of the computers, because I remember he came in one time and he's like, those computers, they don't work well. It's like, oh God, they're your computers. <laughs> and so, so he just next, replaced next day, it. Yeah, like, like six computers showed up FedEx. <laughs> like, oh, that's nice. I think I'll take those. Yeah. Um, no, he was super nice, and the family is super supportive. Right. Lisa became an editor of the paper, and uh, she learned a lot about writing. She loved writing. Mm. I know there's been a lot of controversy. There was a book written about Steve, in which he was depicted as not such a nice guy. I never saw that aspect of him. Mm. Uh, if he did it, it was in the company. I never he never right, did it right. in the school. Then Lisa wrote a book about you know the fact that he wasn't such a great dad. Um, I can I can see that you know because um, mm-hmm. I know she had trouble getting him to admit that he was her father for a long time. But I thought you know the book was very introspective. It was like this is what happened to me, and you know even though it happened to me, I still forgave him. You know he's my dad. And then she came here and she gave a book reading and. She was outstanding, just outstanding. Her reflections, everybody loved it. There were about 500 people here. Wow. Lisa's a great girl, yeah. a woman now. Of course, she has her own baby, a little baby boy. And um, so, you know, I, I've always liked the family. They're a, a really great family. And Steve's goal was really, you know, again, to change the world. I remember when he talked about having a phone in your pocket. You know, I thought he was crazy because it was like, I always have to sit home and listen till the phone rings, you know, and then what up? And it's like the idea of having a phone in your pocket seemed like a dream. It was like, yeah, sure, you know, cows are going to, you know, turn over and they're going to lie. They're not going to produce milk anymore. No, no. Everybody's going to be right. Anyway, it seems so un- unrealistic. Um, but I was really excited to see what he did. And um, he had some great philosophy. If you haven't listened to his talk I, he gave at Stanford, he's, it's outstanding. One of my hobbies is actually just to watch all of his old videos and his old interviews. I've watched every single one of his old interviews, whether it's an hour, all of those things. And the, the things that he came up with even in the 90s, saying that everybody should learn computer science because it helps you think. It's the computational thinking. I mean, there's so much on education that he... He loved education. He loved education. He had profound ideas about education back then. And even today, it's, you know, we're still trying to put those things in place. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan and I still learn a lot from him even today. Without naming like favorites, name a few students that kind of come to your head when you think of past students that have gone through your program. Well, I have hundreds of them that I could probably think of and maybe thousands since I've been doing this for so many years. Feels like I have a very big family. Yes. Um, You have a lot of fans out there. Yeah. Yeah. So one of my earliest students was a guy named Oliver Weisberg. And Oliver, I'm sure you never heard of Oliver, but 
He stands out in my mind. He was so dedicated. He was a student who, he wrote this essay in ninth grade, or, yeah, it was ninth grade, and he's like, um, it was a sad essay, but it was so introspective. It was like the tragedy of being no one. And what it was about was no one wanted to be his friend. I thought that was incredible. That was ninth grade. By 10th grade, you know, he was already in the class and he had been there for a while. And the program was very inclusive. And mm-hmm. So he had a lot of friends. By the time he was 11th grade, he was elected as one of the editors of the paper. So he did really well. So he went from somebody who felt completely as an outsider to somebody that was the leader, which was a really big deal. And then he got into Harvard. Fantastic. And, um, and today he is uh, in China. He never spoke any Chinese in high school. He learned Chinese. And he, was one of the, he is one of the people, the leaders in the Alibaba group. Wow. And so here's an example oh. of a kid. He's in, I've, I've, have you I've, met Oliver? I haven't met him, but I've watched uh, some videos that, sh- you know, he was like one of the early guys. He's it, a very early guy. Very early guy. And he's stuck out like a sore thumb. <laughs> he sticks out like a sore thumb because first he's not Chinese. Yeah, so so now I remember days. because, <laughs> cause like, you don't see many... Caucasians. Caucasians at Alibaba, and then he's very kind of... He was very formal one. Yeah. In high school, it was pretty funny. He always liked to wear Bermuda shorts. I used to kid him. Right. Bermuda shorts and these tall socks. I was like, Oliver, you know, I don't think anyone else around the school is wearing that. <laughs> it's like, okay, it doesn't matter. I'm still wearing it. <laughs> but, you know, I think that he's one of the ones I think of, you know, because if you believe in him, which is mm-hmm. what I did, I always saw that he was really talented and even though you know he didn't believe it at the beginning himself but he was and then he became like I said he's a leader in Alibaba and he's there today still doing a lot of that leadership role I think he met I've forgotten the name of the company that he manages Mm -hmm. but it's connected with Jack Ma right right and then I have another student I have multiple students that work for the New York Times one of them is the New York Times reporter in the Ukraine. The right. repo- Oh, let's see. I think he moved from the New York Times. He's now the economist reporter in the Ukraine. Okay. In Russia. And Noah Snyder. And another student, Gotti Epstein, he also works for the economist. He went through a series of companies. And then I have students that are doctors here at Stanford Medical yeah. Center. Athletes, entrepreneurs, athletes, athletes, entrepreneurs. Yeah, Jeremy Lin. Yeah, Jeremy Lin. Um, went through. I'm a big fan of Jeremy Lin as yeah, well. Yeah, Jeremy Lin is, is a great basketball. He's yeah. also a great person. Yes. yes. He's a really Very nice, religious kind, and religious very guy. kind. Yeah. And he was, you know, he was a really nice guy in high school. Yeah. And so I think, you know, believing in yourself, that made a, a big well, for, difference. For a while, he was the only person really who believed in himself. That's right. He, he, had to he do went that. through that period where, you know, nobody believed in him. And I kind of had my own Jeremy Lin moment. You know how the first day that he walked into Madison Square Garden 
and they stopped him. No. Yeah, did you know that? No. Yeah, well. Why? Well, because he doesn't look like a player. <laughs> That's true. Right? So yeah. the guard stopped him, and then one of the other players had to say, hey, by the way, I think he's on the team. <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, I heard that story. And it really reminded me of the first day on Wall Street. When you work for one of these big firms, it was a privilege to go down to the New York Stock Exchange floor. So I went down to the New York Stock Exchange floor and it was my first visit. And I've got this nice suit on and everything. I go in and it's like this, this thing that I've been dreaming about since I was 13 years old. Oh right? my God. And... I walk in and the first thing I hear, hey, we didn't order Chinese food. No. Yes. Are you kidding? No. And I thought, you know, I heard it and I laughed at it and I just said, you know what? Just let it go. This is the funniest thing. You know why? Yeah. I wasn't at all upset about it because there's no other Asians here. Right. Yeah. And guess what? I've arrived. And now and I'm you're, it. I'm it, and you're going to have to get used to it. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of that. And, you know, when I saw the Jeremy Lin story, I kind of it reminded me of that moment, which I hadn't even thought about. It was like in deep recess of my brain. Right. I hadn't even thought of it. But then I was like, God, I had a moment like that. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, well, when Ann was on Wall Street... There were 99%, 99.9% men. <laughs> exactly. And when she came into the meetings, she had something similar. They're like, um, could you get us more coffee? Yeah. She's like, I'm not, I'm not the waitress. I'm a member of this board. <laughs> They're like, what? <laughs> so that's, you know. Yeah. That's what and I'm, that wasn't many years ago. This is no, like, I know. It's not many years. Well, when it, it's I, amazing I to me. I first moved to the Bay Area yeah. and was working um, as a journalist. I could not get into the San Francisco Press Club because yeah. it was men only. This is unbelievable. I mean, th- things have really Things have changed, changed fast. Yeah. very quickly because it really wasn't that long ago. I wanted to ask you about Joy Ito. Um, Joey Ito? Joey Ito, because I've been stopped at airports uh, five different times now. They thought you were Joey? For uh, autograph for Joey. And my name is Joey, because <laughs> that's what people call me. And I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll sign it. <laughs> but, but I finally got a chance to meet Joey Ito last summer, mm-hmm. this past summer. Uh, he was the nicest guy, and I actually brought my daughter to meet him, and he was on his way on a flight, and he gave us uh, 15 minutes, and he was just the nicest guy. He's super, super Super nice. nice. Tell me how you met him and how you got to work on the, the Creative Commons with him. Am I getting that right? Right. I think somebody had referred me to them. I'd never found out who. But I do know that the, the, my first encounter was that um, Joey invited me to lunch. And I thought, that was really nice. I didn't even know who he was either. And so I went to lunch with him, and he talked about his background and you know, how he came from Japan and his mother and his... How old was he at this time? I don't know. He might have been 
maybe in his late 20s or okay. something. Or yeah. I don't know how old. And we talked about his education and his lack of education in some areas and his sister and, you know, his feelings about education. and What was his education? He stopped. He was he one stopped. of these smart, intuitive kids mm-hmm. who's like, you know, I'm not learning anything here. Now, that's kind of <laughs> crazy. Gee, is anybody else like me? Well, no one was learning anything, but Joey was the only one that had the guts to say it. And so he's like, no, I'm not going to sit through all this stuff. I've had enough. So he quit. (laughs) And and so I think he was a little worried that he might have done something wrong. Because, you know, in Japan, you don't do that. No. You know, you just follow the leader and just, if you don't like it, tough. But he was, he's really, really smart and very creative. And so then he invited me to meet this guy, Larry Lessig, who is like a very big name in, um, at Harvard and lost and very big name. He gives the best talks I've ever seen. And um, so the next thing I knew, I was going out to lunch with Larry. It's like, that's pretty nice. God, nice having all these nice lunches with people that are really interesting. And then that followed. I didn't realize I was being interviewed. But it turns out that's what was happening. Then I was offered and invited to be on the board of Creative Commons. Mm. And I was like, really? That's a pretty big deal. And I looked it up, you know. It's like, wow, just down my alley, Creative Commons. Yeah. And uh, so I accepted. And that was pretty exciting. You know, be on the board. I met all these people. They had a great board of directors. And I was really impressed to be part of that group. And then after about a couple of years on the board, going to these board meetings that I'd never been to, I was big eye-opener for me. They asked me if I wanted to be chairman of the board. And I was like, what? Me, chairman? You know, everybody's a professor here, except, you know, Joey wasn't a professor, but everybody else was. All legal, really famous people, legal, big legal names. And I'm like a high school teacher, and I'm going to be chairman of the board? Yes, they said. Yes, you too. So that's what happened. I became chairman of the board of Creative Commons. And um, that was quite an interesting experience. You know, I, I learned a lot. You know, I'm sorry that I should have taken more assertive action. My gut reactions were right. Everything I was thinking about doing was right or not doing. And I just should have had more courage to do some of those things. Mm-hmm. But in spite of everything, it worked out. Yeah. And I'm still on their board. Mm-hmm. I'm now um, the alumni, or not, it's another board. It's for people that have already been on the board. And uh, I have a very distinguished group of colleagues that are on that board. And my goal was um, to make Creative Commons licensed work available to the world. And also I worked on OER, Open Education Resources, mm-hmm. and I'm still pretty passionate about Creative Commons and about OER. And I think that there's ways to get that material to be more effectively used. I met some people who are getting ready to do that, and, you know, I'd like to help them. I think one of the big problems with the Creative Commons OER materials is they're not graded, they're not ranked. And so if you're a busy teacher and you want to use something, oh, you have to go through a lot of stuff before you get to what you need. Whereas if you are buying it from a publisher, 
you know what you're getting. It's curated. It's curated material. Yeah. So I think that needs to be curated for right. Creative Commons. So is that part of what G, uh, the Global Moonshots for Education Board is is doing now? Is that like... So Global Moonshots for Education it, Board is trying to is expand really the use of those... Creative Commons works? Yeah. Well, they're, that's not one of their goals yet, but huh. it will be eventually. Okay. Yeah. So the goal now is to get this idea across worldwide that education has to change now, and this is how to do it. Yeah. And so 20% of the time, students have to be given the ability to control a project together with one or two or three other people that is real world, yeah. that is going to somehow impact, I don't care whether it's the media world, the digital world, the medical world, the vegetarian world, any world, whatever they want to do, but something to make their world better. It can be entertainment, you know, it can right. be something that what? they want to do. And there's a lot of things out there that I see happening. Right. Uh, they can make YouTube videos, they can have a YouTube channel, they can upload <clears throat> their apps to the Android store, to the Apple store. Um, they can organize groups of people that help go out into the community and work with others. There's a lot of things that they can do, and we just don't give them any time to do it. I mean, they're frantic You're, to the test. What's your thinking behind 20%? How did you get that number? Well, I came up with 20% because you want to have some significant time, but not. I don't want to threaten the whole system. Yeah. I think 80% of the time they can teach traditionally. That's not a threat to the whole system. And I think 20%, it gives them an opportunity to try it and see if there's some way that they can incorporate that effectively. Because I don't want to blame the teachers, the administrators, anybody. They're all doing their best. But this will give them an opportunity to try a new method, a new system that will work effectively. And Google also used a 20% time where the employees had a chance to work 20% of the time on what was a passion project for them. And that 20% time, it wasn't chosen by a lot of people. A lot of people didn't do it, but some people did. Yeah, and a lot of great things came out of well, that. Well, Gmail, Gmail is one came of them. Out. Yes, it's a big deal. Or Google Photos. Google Photos. A lot yeah. of great projects that came out of the 20% time. So the, it's part of that. I'm thinking about, can we give kids 20% time? Because they can help solve the problems. We have so many problems facing the world yeah. today. I mean, if we don't work as a planet to solve the problems facing us as a planet, there's not going to be anybody left on the planet. And I mean, going to Mars is not an option for me. I'm not going. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Earth is no, a very, very nice place and we should keep it that way. Yeah, let's just yeah. keep it that way. Yeah. Maybe you can take some of the politicians today with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is... YouTube doing in education now? And I, I know that YouTube has become the largest education platform in the world now. YouTube um, is the largest education platform in the world. Are they doing something specifically to make that a product or make that a more usable? So they have this new thing. First of all, there's a curated area on YouTube for children, for, you know, preschool. YouTube for kids. YouTube, YouTube for the kids. Yeah. And then now they 
YouTube Learning. Oh, and okay. And YouTube Learning is a place where you can upload. That's quite it. new, right? I it's have, new. I haven't actually gone through that yet. You should check it. Yeah. It's really good. Okay. And so, yes, YouTube is the number one platform in the world for learning. It's yeah. a billion education hits per day. Yes. And everybody's okay. looking up stuff on YouTube. And, you know, all these people are posting education videos. I think YouTube should be incorporated into the school curriculum. Well, that's you what know, I'm trying to do is to show teachers that they don't have to work that hard, that a lot of those YouTube videos have a lot of the information. Yeah. Why would they want to do all that work? Just let it happen. And I think part of it is because we're, we we grow up thinking that we're not allowed to use this. That's right. Which and, is a, I mean, YouTube is... No, a, because as a teacher, you're always taught to create your own curriculum and all of this stuff that you should be creating yourself and there's obviously plagiarism and so you grow up with all of these this baggage but a lot has changed since then a lot has changed since i just remember when i first started in you know a lot of the uh, video stuff in the beginning of 2000 i remember there were so many ridiculous rules one of the rules was that we as a newspaper and being online, we could never take pictures of students' faces. We could only take a picture of their back. That was like, people were crazy at that time. And so they made me take down the website that we had up there because we had pictures of students' faces. You know, it just takes society time to come to grips with how things have changed. So YouTube learning is one of the most effective ways to learn on the web and there's so many great videos and i would let kids watch youtube learning and teachers are free to use any of that any of that stuff and they can also post their own stuff if they want yeah and you know they can have their own channel and they can have kids you, you know you're trying to teach quadratic equations let kids make a video about it and post it the amount of learning that goes on in that is really a lot. Or, you know, anything about history, like the history of the civil rights movement, they can do that. There's a lot of possibility. Yeah. If you teach it, you retain it and learn it, you know, you have to learn it much better, right? So we'll end with, it all goes with the Creative Commons and the YouTube for Education. I think this idea of really expanding the use of all the curriculum and all the great educational videos that are out there right now and making it part of the classroom. And that's the idea that we kind of tossed around. We gave a name for it today called Marshot U. <laughs> Yeah, Mars shot you. That yeah. was pretty interesting. I would love to continue to work with you on that and then to also work with you on the GME project as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the teacher training programs that I'm doing around the world, I would love to have the GME be a part of that whole program because we need a lot more of that around the world. And I think that's the best way to change the system is from within and actually getting everybody involved and changing it there so that's it thank you very much this has been absolutely amazing some of these stories i've heard for the first time and uh just amazing stories about steve and sergey and and your daughters thank you so much it's great to learn how you went through all of that 
to get to where you are today. Well, thank you for inviting me and for listening to me. And I thank all your listeners for listening. And I hope it was inspiring yeah. and educational. It's very inspiring. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for listening in on the very first episode of How I Learned This Podcast. You can learn more about Esther Wojcicki and her work at www.moonshots.org. You can also follow her on Twitter and watch many of her videos on YouTube. And make sure to get a copy of her new book, How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results. Thank you for listening to How I Learned This with Joseph Jong. Please give us your comments at HILT Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And tell us what you're learning or suggest people that you'd like to hear on this show. You can find us online at futurehack.co slash hilt podcast and by email at hilt at futurehack.co. We look forward to taking you back to the hilt next week. My name is Esther Wojcicki. I'm the author of How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results. And I just want to talk to you a little bit about the coronavirus and the fact that it's a crisis for the world actually the whole world, not just a few countries. We can mitigate this crisis by working together, trusting and respecting each other, allowing people more independence to solve problems, and treating each other with kindness in all circumstances. This philosophy is all part of my book, How to Raise Successful People. And my acronym TRIC, which is in the book, stands for Trust, Respect, Independence, Collaboration, and Kindness. These principles help people work together and get through difficult times. These principles work especially in parenting, in school, in corporations, and in our personal relationships. We need to see ourselves as part of a team of humanity working together to face the problems we encounter in life. When we work together, we can be creative and compassionate and overcome the problems we face, especially now with coronavirus. So I recommend you think about adopting these principles. You'll see how effective they can be. Make sure you pick up a copy of Esther's book, How to Raise Successful People, and learn about her trick methodology, T-R-I-C-K. It's an amazing book. I'm using it right now to homeschool my children, and it's a core part of our ethos at the Future Hack Innovators Summer Program. Now, what is the Future Hack Innovators Program? It's something that I started three years ago. We've held it at MIT for the last three years. And if you're a teenager that wants to change the world and have your sights set on the top universities, then I hope you're not just counting on your grades and test scores to get you in. Top unis are looking for students with entrepreneurial experience, great public speaking skills, and a lot of great tech skills. That's what the Future Hack Innovators Summer Program is all about. Check us out at futurehack.co. That's F-U-T-U-R-E-H-A-C-K dot C-O. Our next sponsor is MyCapital, one of Asia's first licensed institutional grade cryptocurrency and digital asset management companies. It's no longer a secret that a well-diversified portfolio with as low as 1% invested in Bitcoin can greatly outperform all the others still in denial of the digital currency wave. Check them out at MyCapital, M-A-I-Capital.io. For all the visitors coming to visit Asia, or if you are in Asia already, drop me a line. I'm at hiltpodcast at futurehack.co.
And for those of you looking for an adventure in Asia, don't miss the Flight of the Gibbons in Chiang Mai. It's the first and the most trusted zipline adventure in Thailand. It's a rare chance for you and your family to see and learn about primates while zipping through the forest right alongside these amazing gibbons. It's the most eco-friendly family tourist destination, and I've actually taken my own family on there, and we've had an absolute blast. Visit them at flightofthegibbon.com.